listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. A reading from Galatians, verses 12 to 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial for you, you did not discorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. So every great relationship intervention Uh, has generally four steps. You've probably been in one of these back in college when you were dating that one guy and your friends got around you and said, look, not sure you see what's going on here, but this guy's not good for you. Or or guys, you know, (laughs) you were staying up late, too late one night and, and somebody was like, do you really think she's good for you? Every great relationship intervention has four steps. Step one is always reinforce the value of the friendship, the value, the quality of the friendship. You know, when you're sitting across the table from someone and you're about to tell them how bad the person they love is for them, you start out by saying, hey man, you know I've got your back, right? You know I've always been there for you. I've got your best interest at heart. That's step one. Step two is then you tell them the truth about the toxicity of this relationship that they're in. You're like, I, don't, I know you don't see it, but you need to know. He's just using you. He doesn't actually, I know you think he loves you. He doesn't. I can see it, and you need to see it too. Step three is you tell some sort of story to try to uh, build or rebuild an emotional resonance with what's going on. Generally, that involves sort of playing out the future, right? If nothing changes 12 years from now, 15 years from now, you're going to wish you'd listened. Step four, drop the hammer. You got to dump him. You got to get rid of her. Like now, you need to cut and run. If you've never been in one of these, surely you've seen one in a romantic comedy or something like that, especially this time of year with all the Hallmark Christmas movies. You know what I'm talking about. In Galatians so far, if you've been tracking along with us through the last three and a half chapters, over and over and over again, Paul has been saying like, to these Gentile believers in Jesus who are following these new teachers who showed up after Paul left, he's been saying to these guys, look, these new teachers are not good for you. They've been, they've been telling you things that are wrong. They've been trying to get you again into a slavery and obedience to the Old Testament law, to the Torah, that you don't have to follow because Jesus the Messiah has overcome all of that. He's fulfilled all of that. And for three and a half chapters, he's been going on and on saying, what they're saying isn't true. What they're saying isn't true. Let me show you over and over and over again. And at some point, you're like, Paul, just tell him to break up. And he finally does. 
We're there. We're like three-fourths of the way through the movie where there's the climactic moment where the best friend is going to tell the other friend, you got to dump this guy. That's where we are in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now, I said there's four steps to every good relationship intervention. We're only covering two this morning. This is a two-part sermon. We're covering the first two steps today, and next week, Pastor Jeff's going to lead us through the second two steps of this gospel relationship intervention. So this week, as we go through verses 12 through 20, by the way, it's on page 18 of your scripture journal. If you've got one, if you don't have one, I mean, we've still got half the, uh, the letter left, so there's time to grab one from the info center downstairs, or uh, if you're grabbing that Bible under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1156, or just, hey, Google, show me Galatians 4, and it'll pull it right up for you. Uh, Verses 12 through 20 are steps one and two of this relationship intervention. Step one, reinforce the value and the quality of the friendship. You know, hey, man, you know I've always been there for you. And step two, this guy is not good for you. Point out what's what's really going on. So we're going to jump into these eight or nine verses and cover them in those two big swaths, step one and step two, reinforcing the value of the friendship, pointing out what's really going on. Step one, the value, the quality of the friendship. This is verses 12 through 16. Now, I say the, the friendship there because if we lived in the ancient Greek world, we would immediately recognize that in this barrage of commands and comments and questions and polemical sideswipes, one author calls them, Paul is circling around this ancient and common conception of friendship. Friends are those who become like one another in all things as they spend time with one another. Friends are those who don't have outstanding accusations or disputes. If there's conflict, they settle it because they value the friendship. Friends welcome one another despite their physical conditions. Friends give things up for one another. They sacrifice for one another. Friends tell the truth. Friends want to be together. Friends are consistent in their behavior. They don't change the way they relate for no reason. All of that comes through in verses 12 through 16, where Paul's reinforcing the quality, the value of their friendship. Start out in verse 12. Just brothers or brothers and sisters, I entreat you, uh, or I beg you, if the word entreat is foreign to your vocabulary, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, it's significant in this letter, to this point, the emotion has been building throughout the letter, as Paul has said over and over again, what these teachers are teaching you is wrong. They are leading you down a false path, and the emotion has been building, and it comes to this sort of emotional high point here in this passage at the very same time that we finally get the first command in the letter, the first imperative, the first time Paul tells us what to do shows up here in verse 12. So the emotion is high after verse 11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I put all of this work into you, and it has done you no good. I beg you, become like me. There's the command. Become like me. Become as I am. I've become like you are. You should become as I am. You can hear the pastoral heart in his words. As Paul is watching, he's hearing about people that he has dearly loved, people he's labored over and sacrificed for, people he left behind sooner than he would have liked to, people he's prayed for and thought about, longed to see, people he's loved from a distance. 
And he hears they're walking away from their faith in Jesus, adding on to their faith in Jesus, being deluded into thinking they need to adopt religious practices, practices which Paul knows for a fact have been fulfilled and done away with in Jesus. He's hearing about how they're being pulled into this destructive relationship with these teachers. They're being pulled back into an obedience-based slavery to the law, a slavery that never gives life. It only brings death. And he's looking at what happened, what's happening to them and pleading with them, begging them, commanding them all at once, become like me. Can't you see this the way I see it, the way I taught you to see it? Can't you, can't you see what I'm trying to say? So he launches this relationship intervention, starting with his defense of the quality and the value of their relationship, clearing the air first in verse 12. You have done me no wrong. There's no, he's not mad at them. There's no outstanding conflict or something that needs to be taken care of. He's saying, you haven't done anything that makes me angry. I'm here because I care about you. I'm writing this because I love you. You need to, you need to know these things. I'm writing because I'm, I'm your friend. Verses 13 and 14 then show the, the deep affection that they had for him and that he had for, for them, the, the deep affection that was at the basis of their friendship. In, in these verses, Paul recounts, when he first came to town and preached to, him, to, preached to them, it was because of, he says, a bodily ailment and a condition And we don't exactly know what Paul means by the bodily ailment or the condition, whatever physical trouble he was going through. There's a lot of theories that have been put out there. Some say maybe he had epilepsy. Some say he was suffering from migraines. Some people said, well, he just finished traveling through the swamps of Pamphylia, so he probably contracted malaria. Uh, Probably the most popular way of looking at it is saying, well, he must have had an eye problem because in verse 15 he says, you guys love me so much you you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me if you could have. That's probably just an idiomatic way of saying you would have given everything of value to me. I mean, when we tell people to, hey, give him a hand, we don't literally mean cut off your hand and give it to them. If Paul had said, you know, I came to you in physical trouble and you would have given your heart to me, we wouldn't have probably assumed that Paul had a heart issue. Uh, To give your eyes to someone or pluck out your eyes to give them to someone is just another sort of ancient Greek way of saying, you would have given me everything of value to you if that's what I needed. Actually, it's fascinating that everywhere Paul goes and every relationship he forms, every relationship with a church he forms, it seems like there's no end to what people would give to Paul because of the message he brought and the ministry that he had among them and then had after he left them. So what was the physical condition? I, th- I think probably the best guess is most likely that he stumbled into the cities in southern Galatia fresh off of the rejection and the beatings and the stonings that he seemed to get in every other city he went to. Whether he had just been stoned or had just been rejected with you know, very little money and traveling for miles on foot and weary from the road and still wounded and disfigured. These are the words that are being used here. Whatever it was, they, they could have scorned him or despised him, but instead they received him as an angel of God, he says. 
scorned or despised. When somebody walks into, into town, somebody walks into your life, or you see somebody who's physically disfigured or ill, especially in uh, the ancient Greco-Roman context, you'd look at that person as like, okay, what evil are you bringing with you? Like literally like, you know, stay back. Uh, if you're coming in beaten up, then it means you deserved it because you did something. And if, you, if I welcome you, then I'm welcoming whatever you did wrong in, into my home. The word there for uh, despise, you didn't scorn or despise me, is you didn't spit in front of me in order to ward off the evil you thought I carried. He says, no, I, the exact opposite. You welcomed me as if I were an angel, a messenger from God, as if I were the Messiah, Jesus himself. You see the depth of the affection they had for him, the friendship that they had. Of course, all this, too, is just as an aside, this is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the churches in these towns, work that Paul has already talked about earlier in the letter. And it's not because of him, it's because of his message. If someone stumbled into Indianapolis or into into this room, scarred and disfigured and still pulling gravel out from their last stoning and said, I bring you a message of healing and life, I mean, what would you think? If that's life, (laughs) I'm not sure I want it, but that's exactly how Paul showed up and then gave the message and they said, this message is coming from God. It wasn't the messenger that appealed or compelled, but the message itself Now, back to the text. Paul's saying, I put all of this effort and work into you. I've labored over you. I'm afraid it was for nothing. I beg you, become more like me. I've tried to, I've become like you because we're we're friends. You've done nothing wrong. And, And from the very beginning, our affection for one another was so deep. You welcomed me as if I were the Messiah, Jesus himself. What happened? Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? What happened to the blessing that I was to you and that you were to me and that we were to one another? He says, I know how strong your affection was for me. I testify to you that if possible, you would have given your right arm for me if I needed it. You would have pulled out your eyes for me. You would have given me everything that you valued if that's what I needed. What, what happened in verse 16, this whole time I've been with you, I've been dealing with you truthfully, I've been telling you the truth. I haven't led you falsely, I haven't used you or exploited you, and all of that runs up to the emotional, rhetorical gut punch of verse 16. Why does that make me your enemy? Why do you consider me an enemy now? Why do you think of me as an enemy? Are you mad at me now for being a good friend? Okay, so you see the setup in this gospel relationship intervention. He starts by emphasizing the value and the quality of their friendship. Look, I have always had your best interest at heart. I have worked for you. I have sacrificed for you. I have labored over you. I've been in pain for you. Our affection for one another was so strong. We were such friends. You, you welcomed me from the very beginning. What changed? Well, maybe it has to do with them. Verse 17, moving on to step two, pulling back the curtain, pointing out what's really going on in this toxic relationship between the 
Galatian Gentile believers in Jesus and these teachers who swooped in after Paul left. Verse 17, they, they make much of you. He doesn't even say who they are. I mean, they know, and the Galatians know who he's talking about. We don't know who he's talking about, specifically because he didn't write the letter to us. He wrote it to them, Uh, and so they knew, and he didn't have to fill in the details for them, but they want to shut you out. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. And that phrase, make much of you, I've drawn a box around it in my scripture journal because make much of you here translates uh, the same word that was used in chapter 1 when Paul said he was zealous, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Okay, here's why this is significant. To make much of, to be zealous for, to eagerly pursue, to aggressively court someone is simply to do everything you can to kind of get them on your side or in your camp or, you know, get them agreeing with you. But when Paul uses the word zealous, or translated here in verse 17, make much of, it's got an extra layer underneath it because he self-proclaimed was part of this small subset of the Jewish culture that considered themselves zealots, the zealous ones. Zealous for, or as he says in chapter 1, verse 14, extremely zealous for the traditions of the fathers. What this meant was Paul was part of a community before he came to Christ. He was part of a community that believed that the Messiah would would return if the Jewish people as a whole, every single person would just obey Torah perfectly for one day. One day, that's all it took. If, in fact, it wasn't even that everybody had to do everything perfectly for the day. It was just as long as no one broke Torah for one day, Messiah would come back. So the entire life mission of Paul and guys like him was to get Israel to obey. Obey the Torah. Take it seriously. Put it into practice. So he's, he's saying they are zealous for you. But it's a misguided zeal. They're even going beyond what Paul and his compatriots did before Paul came to Christ, not just trying to get Jews to obey Torah, but trying to get Gentiles to obey Torah too. They're they're even more zealous than Paul was, but it's not for a good purpose. Now, he doesn't go into details right here, but he will by the end of the letter in chapter 6 in the concluding paragraphs. Where he says, look, these rival teachers, they're zealously courting, they're, they're eagerly courting the Gentile believers in Jesus because they're trying to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. Early in the sermon series, when we were looking at the first couple of chapters and kind of setting the social context, we talked about how all, there were all these different pressures, theological pressures and economic pressures and social pressures on uh, Gentile believers in Jesus to conform to some sort of standard of Judaism so that Jewish believers in Jesus wouldn't be accused of breaking their sort of contract with the Roman government. Basically, the way it worked is no one was going to enforce Jews worshiping Caesar, worshiping the Greek and Roman gods, because they would rather die than do that. So they kind of had an exemption, a carve-out 
in social life. But now Gentiles are coming in, and they're also not worshiping Caesar and saying they're exempt, but they're not acting Jewish, so what's going on here? And the Jewish communities were saying, this isn't good. Like, you are either out or you're all the way in. Either way, we don't want to take the flack for what you're doing wrong. And those who were Jewish believers were saying, well, obviously the solution here, if Messiah has come for everyone, is that, well, it's Israel's Messiah, so let's make everyone Israelites. It's a Jewish Messiah. Let's make them Jews. Bring them in. If, if they just sign up for a super simple surgery, sign on the dotted line, you're going to follow all the rules, well, then we won't have this problem anymore. Paul says this is not a good reason. Look, they are teaching you these things in order to use you to avoid trouble in their own lives. That's for no good purpose. Now, he doesn't go into those details. I'm borrowing them for later in the letter. But what he does lay out is the emotional manipulation that's going on in order to get them, these Gentile believers in Jesus, to do what they want. Second half of verse 17, they want to shut you out so that you will make much of them so that you'll be zealous for them, so that you will eagerly court them. In other words, Jewish believers in Jesus have sort of stepped back behind a door and said, we're the inner circle, the true members of Abraham's worldwide family. We're we're the true followers. And if you want to know for sure that you're part of the family, well, it's very easy just become like us. And they pushed them out the door so that they would want to come into the door, so that the Gentile believers would come to the Jewish believers knife in hand and say, let's do this. I want in. He says, look, look, excluding someone in order to make them want your presence, that's not good friendship. This is what they're doing to you, emotionally manipulating you in order to avoid difficulty in their own lives. He's pretty blunt about it. It's not good. Now, he's blunt about it and saying, here's what these guys are doing, but then immediately softens again and reminds them of his care for them. Verse 18, look, it's, it's all, I know it feels good. It's always good to be made much of, to be pursued, to be courted, to be eagerly sought after. It feels good to have people want you as part of their group, if it's for a good reason, for a good purpose, a noble purpose. And at first we think he's talking about the false teachers. He's actually talking about himself. It's always good for me to court you eagerly because it's for a good reason. And I didn't just do it when I was present with you. I'm doing it now, even though I'm absent. I'm doing it in writing. I'm trying to convince you, look, everything I've taught you, everything I've done for you is for your good, not mine. I'm not the one exploiting you and trying to manipulate you into making my life easier. I'm trying to, and he'll go on to say, form Jesus in you. He's sort of going back and forth between steps one and steps two, reinforcing the value and the quality of their friendship, showing how bad these false teachers are, coming back to the value of their friendship again. And then to continue that, I mean, to show his heart, he doubles down on his analogy of friendship, actually takes it deeper into the realm of family, uh, specifically motherhood in, in this case. Uh, verse 19, 
Well, backing up, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, my little children. I don't just consider you friends. It's like you're my, my children, my children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, obviously, Paul uh, isn't using the analogy of childbirth um, from firsthand experience, uh, but it's a fascinating analogy nonetheless, and instructive, I think, for our sort of hyper-masculine times that we live in right now, when we're looking for a strong leader, you know, leaders who will do the hard thing, say the hard thing, uh, who, who will fight for us and be tough and courageous. You know, real leadership is strong leadership, right? Paul describes his leadership as like a mother. Not a, not a butt-kicking, fight the bad guys, you know, do whatever it takes type of mother, but a mother who willingly enters into pain in order to bring about life in another person. And it's the way he's using the words here, it's not just the actual pain of childbirth, but it's all the pain that goes for it, before it, all of the pain and discomfort of actually forming that life within you. It's an instructive analogy. Because you know, some of us love to some of us love to be confrontive, kind of like Paul is here in this passage. You know, just lay it out there, say it straight get worked up about the things that offend us, assuming those are also the things that offend God. And then we love the harshness and the boldness and the, you know, the bravery with which Paul addresses the Galatians in writing. Actually, we tend to forget that when he was in person, most everyone thought he was a fairly unimpressive speaker. Not much passion there. He could be forceful, I'm sure, at times, but he was pretty meek and mild in person, tempering the strength of his positions with relational grace, grace and sensitivity. I don't know why it is that we would prefer the harshness. We would prefer the, the blunt in your faceness when Paul says to be a real pastor, to be a real leader, is to willingly enter into pain in order to form Christ in other people. He's saying, look, I... I'm in anguish. Again. See the word again? He's like, I've already gone through this once. I thought my, my, my anguish and my work and my labor had formed already a Messiah-shaped one family in southern Galatia. And he's like, now I feel like I'm back to halfway through the pregnancy again, where I'm going through all this pain of forming life in you again and all the pain of bringing you again to birth because I want this fully formed, Messiah-shaped, Abraham's one worldwide family type of community among you all. And it's like we're back to the beginning. And I'm going through all the pain again. But he says, I, I don't want to be harsh with you. In verse 20. Like, Look, I know I'm laying it on strong here. I don't want to be harsh with you. I would rather be in person with you so we could talk softly for hours face to face instead of me writing quickly and sharply from a distance. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, change my tone of voice, because I am 
flabbergasted about you. I am perplexed. So confused. Not confused about what to do or what needs to be said, but confused. How did you get here? How did you get to this place? I just don't understand how you got here. Don't you see the danger you're in? Now, if we were going on in this gospel relationship intervention, we would go to verse 21 through 28, 29, and we would, we would go to step three, the, you know, tell a story that creates an emotional connection that sort of rekindles a connection with reality as it is. We don't have time for that. Pastor Jeff's going to lead us through steps three and four next week, part two of this sermon. But where we've come so far, I think it, we can stop and pull out some instruction for us ourselves. Not necessarily the type of instruction, by the way, where it's like the next time you're in a relationship intervention, use Paul as a model. Not that kind of instruction. But what, what comes through here fascinatingly clear, I think, is Paul's heart for the people that he ministers to, the heart of a, of a good pastor. Because, you know, I, I read this passage, and it, at times it can come across as a little, a little petty, I don't know if you read it that way or heard it that way, where he's saying, like, I have worked, you, you, could, you could hear it like this, I have worked so hard for you, you've done nothing for me, I wish you would become like me, don't you see how bad they are and how good I've been? I don't think that's his, his heart. If you've ever been in one of those relationship interventions I keep referencing, you know that if, if you're going to do that, that's rarely the motivation, it comes from a deep well of love that is willing to risk even the relationship if it would bring about some good in the other person's life. A year or two before my wife and I got engaged, she was engaged to another guy, a guy who was emotionally and verbally abusive, a guy that had told her that if she ever broke up with him, he would probably take his own life out of despair. So she never felt like she had permission to end the relationship. How do you do that when someone's life is on the line? It was bad enough that on one occasion where the, the verbal abuse just wouldn't stop, the only way to make it stop was to get out of the car, even though it was 65 miles an hour down the interstate. I mean, it was the only way to make it stop. I mean, until one weekend when she was home and working in the barn with her dad, and, and her dad said, you know, honey, you know, you know your mom and I love you. We love you and this relationship that you're in. You are not you since you started dating this guy. And it doesn't have to be this way, and it's not going to get better. You don't have to stay. Which was the first time anyone had ever given her permission to break up with him. So the very next day, she dumped him, which worked out great for me. <laughs> That's Paul's heart in this passage. It's not the heart of a, of a jealous boyfriend trying to get somebody to dump somebody else. It's not the heart of somebody who wants to use the other person for their own ends or for their own means to make themselves feel better. It's the heart of a father, of a mother, looking at a child and saying, do you not understand? This guy is pulling you down into destruction. 
You've got to get rid of him. Paul is writing to these Galatian Gentile believers in Jesus and saying this false thinking, this false teaching that you are flirting with, these false teachers that you are in a love affair with, they are bad for you and they are pulling you again into slavery. That's where he's going to go by the time he gets to chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus set us free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit again to obedience-based religious slavery where you only feel good enough before God if you've performed up to a certain level this week, where you've kept the law enough, you've done all the right things, you've said all the right things, you, you dressed up for church on Sunday, you showered and shaved before you showed up this morning, you, you, know, you tithed the right amount, you were respectable, you attended a class, whatever it is. He's saying, look, do not... Let these guys convince you that the only way to know you're in is to earn it. That's not the gospel. That's not freedom. That's not life. That's slavery. That's death. Paul's looking at their future if they continue this affair with these false teachers and saying, if you go down that road 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you're going to wake up and wish you'd listened. Because I know what the end of that road looks like. It looks like life, but it only brings death. So, I mean, I'll drop the hammer now, even though Paul's going to wait until next week. Dump those guys. Get rid of them. Cast out the slave woman and her son. He's using an Old Testament story to illustrate his point. Cast them out. Because his message, which he has preached while being physically abused for it, that he has preached while subjecting himself to poverty for it, his message that he preaches about the good news about Jesus is the message of freedom and forgiveness and life. His work, his labor is to form each of them and all of them collectively into Christ. He says, I am in anguish of childbirth until Jesus, until the Messiah is formed in you. Actually, in Greek, it's in you all, the community, you as a whole. Of course, that applies to each person individually. Christ formed in each of us, and then that formation communally and in the community happening. So this community is formed into the shape of the Messiah. When Paul says, become like me, he's not being arrogant or selfish, or praising himself. He's saying, I have found in the message of Israel's Messiah, I have found life, and I have found freedom, and I want that for you. Become like me, because I've become like Jesus. Be free like me, because I am free in Jesus. Become like me, so you can say, like he said back in in chapter 2, I've been crucified along with Jesus, and yet I'm still alive. Only the life that I'm now living in this body, I don't live on my own. It's a life of faithfulness, to the Son of God because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who's faithful to love me and give himself for me and enter into death so I don't have to. Become like me. Become like that. Become shaped by the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah. And if our community would be formed and shaped by that story as well, can you imagine all of these conflicts would go away if every single one of us thought that our role in this church was to enter into pain and death so we could offer other people life? That's what it means for Christ to be formed in us and in all of us 
collectively. You see the stakes of what he's writing about? Slavery or freedom? Death or life? Now, I don't, I don't think... I was going to say, I don't think many of us need a uh, gospel relationship intervention this morning, but maybe some of us do. I mean, maybe we're here, and the only reason we feel okay to be here or okay before God is because we know we haven't screwed up that bad this week. We've kept the major sins at a fairly low level, and the minor ones aren't, you know, not too high either. We feel like we're okay, we're good with God, we're worthy to come into His presence, to sing together, to pray. We think maybe He'll listen when we pray because this week there hasn't been all that much I've had to confess. And I've done all the right things, checked all the right boxes, took care of all of the right religious observances. You know what? Didn't miss my morning devotions once this week. Eight days into, nope, nine days into the new year, holding strong. God must be so proud of me. I don't know, maybe some of, I think we probably all fairly regularly need a gospel relationship intervention because we so quickly gravitate towards something else to convince us that we're in, that we're good, that we're loved, that we're accepted. Paul says that way is the way of death. It's the way of religious performance, obedience-based slavery. It's not the way of freedom. It's not the way of life. If you're flirting with that belief, break up with it. It's not good for you. Freedom in Christ is worth fighting for. I love this passage because Paul is very much willing to get in our faces if it means he can get us to see the face of Jesus. Father, you have called us to yourself. Uh, you call and you call and you continue to call and we come to you and we come to you in faith and we come to you on our knees with only our sin and we, we know that you have forgiven us because of Jesus. We know it and can't seem to make ourselves feel it sometimes. We feel forgiven when we know there's not much we need to be forgiven for. Yet you tell us, Father, that we are forgiven only, only because of your Son. Father, give us rest in the love that you have for us, the peace and the grace that you have given to us in Jesus. Give us rest. Give us peace. That we may know that in you we have freedom. Free us from our self-imposed slavery to the things we think will please you, and give us life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.